Aging Matters on WERA is brought to you in part by Synergy Home Care. Synergy Home Care provides premier in-home care for you or your loved one throughout Northern Virginia, including personal care, homemaker services, companion and memory care, and transportation. Call 703-558-3435 or visit SynergyHomeCare.com for more information. Synergy Home Care will find a care solution to meet your needs. Good afternoon and welcome to Aging Matters on Arlington Independent Media's community radio station, WERA Arlington, 96.7 FM. I'm Cheryl Beversdorf, your host. Breast cancer risk increases with age, and approximately one-third of female breast cancers are diagnosed in patients older than age 70. Advancements in diagnosis and highly individualized treatment plans are increasing the odds of recovery for older patients and making it possible for many to live longer, healthier lives. Today, my guest is Dr. Claudine Isaacs, Professor of Medicine and Oncology with the Lombardi Comprehensive Center, Cancer Center at Georgetown University. Dr. Isaacs also practices as a clinical oncologist at MedStar Georgetown University Hospital. She will talk about risk factors and common signs for breast cancer, also tools to diagnose the disease, including mammography and genetic testing, and she'll also discuss factors that are considered when deciding the most effective treatment options. So welcome, Dr. Isaacs, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, Dr. Isaacs, I mentioned already that breast cancer is common among older women and the incidence is likely to increase. Help us understand what puts an older woman at high risk for breast cancer and what are the risk factors that can be changed to avoid this happening? So, so you're absolutely right that, that breast cancer risk increases uh, with age. So uh, the majority of breast cancers that are diagnosed are in women over the age of 50 and maybe up to a third or so are in women over the age of 70. Um, there are, we do know a lot about risk factors, but there's a lot that we don't know as well. But the, the risk factors that do place women uh, at increased risk for postmenopausal breast cancer include uh, obesity. So that's certainly something that, that can be modified. There's also evidence that exercise is good. Alcohol consumption is, is a risk factor for breast cancer. So that is one of the other things that, that certainly we can do that could be modified. And then there are a host of other things um, that are related um, mainly to a woman's reproductive history. So how old was she when she had her first period? That's not something we can do a lot about. How old was she when she went into menopause? Again, not something that is highly modifiable. Um, age at first full-term pregnancy is, is, uh, is a risk factor. So the earlier age at first full-term pregnancy, uh, the lower the risk. Breastfeeding is something that is protective. So again, that is something that we are talking increasingly to women about, about the importance for the health for their baby, but also for them. Um, but the main things that, that an older woman could do to modify her risk is to stay physically active, uh, to work on weight control, 
and to really uh, be uh, mindful in terms of alcohol intake. And what I'm also hearing you say, because my next question was going to be about the risk factors that can't be changed, such as you said, when she starts her period or the time of menopause, might there be other risk factors that can't be changed in addition to the ones you just mentioned? So certainly family history is a risk factor that we really have little control about. And we know that that breast cancer can be inherited um, and that there are certain genes that people can inherit that place them at significantly increased risk. There are probably also other uh, genes that are lower risk that that do increase uh, one's uh, likelihood of developing breast cancer. And those are things that we really cannot change. Um, The other things that we we can't change uh, our risk of developing, there are certain Uh, findings on prior biopsies, prior breast biopsies that we know significantly increase somebody's risk of going on to subsequently developing an invasive breast cancer. Um, What we do have is we can't change the likelihood that somebody is going to develop that, but we actually have very good evidence that certain drugs actually significantly reduce those women's risks of going on to developing an invasive breast cancer. So if somebody is found to have something called what we call lobular carcinoma in situ or LC CIS or or atypical hyperplasia or something like that. We know that taking drugs like tamoxifen or other types of drugs like that can significantly reduce the risk of going on to develop a breast cancer. So there are things that one can do to modify risk if one is found to be in that higher risk category. And so with that in mind, with the possible risk factors that can or cannot be changed, when you look at diagnosing uh, for breast cancer, Is the mammogram, is that the most reliable uh, diagnostic screening test for breast cancer, or are you also recommending other tests and procedures as well? So the standard test and the well-proven test is is very much our our mammograms. Um, And there are different types of mammograms. So there is tomosynthesis or 3D, and those are particularly useful for thinking about older women for older women who have denser breast tissue. But standard mammogram is definitely the gold standard uh, screening tool. In women who have a significantly increased risk because of family history, for instance, because they inherited a gene that, that significantly increased their risk of developing breast cancer, we also have data for adding other studies like MRIs. But in the general population, we are just recommending mammography and uh, the importance of doing that on a regular basis and at a facility that has you know, really good experience and techniques uh, to, do those, to do that imaging. One thing I, I was wondering in terms of a, a, a test or procedure, is a biopsy, is that considered a diagnostic test or not? Because we sometimes hear about breast tissue or biopsy, and I just wanted to clarify whether that falls under the diagnostic screening or that's after the diagnosis has been made. So that's a great question. So when we're talking about imaging like mammography, um, that is really a screening tool to see if there is anything there. A biopsy is done as a diagnostic tool. Something has been detected and we need to figure out what that is. So let's say somebody feels a mass or their healthcare provider feels a mass or there's something seen on mammogram, then a biopsy is done to sort out what that is. And that is a diagnostic procedure, not a screening procedure. Okay. Well, I really wanted to hear more about the genetic testing. I wanted to acknowledge the fact that when I introduced you, 
I should have also added that you are the co-director of the Fisher Center for Hereditary Cancer and Clinical Genomics Research at the Lombardi Center. So we would like to hear more about genetic testing. Why is it important for a woman to have a genetic test for breast cancer? And explain to us how this test is performed, where it is, because I think genetic testing seems so new or maybe it's not so new, but maybe more information is needed. So help us understand more about genetic testing for breast cancer. Absolutely. So about um, 10% or so of all breast cancers are due to a, a change or a mutation in a single gene um, that then conveys a significant increased risk of developing breast cancer. Okay, so that's when we think about genetic testing for a disease, be it breast cancer, be it other types of cancers, be it other diseases, you know, we're really typically referring to a a change or mutation in a single gene that predisposes one to then go on to develop that disease. So in breast cancer, there are a number of genes that have been identified. The ones that we hear most about and that we hear that we know most about are BRCA1 and BRCA2. Um, typically for individuals who inherit mutations in these genes, they have a significantly increased risk of breast cancer as well as an increased risk for ovarian cancer and some other, some other cancers as well. Typically these cancers occur at a younger age, but occasionally they can manifest at a later age. So just because somebody has breast cancer that has a later age of onset, it doesn't mean that they don't have a genetic mutation. It's just they're less likely to have it than if somebody is, di is diagnosed at a younger age. Um, but when we're thinking about genetic testing, we take into account things like what is somebody's age at diagnosis? What is their family history? And when we talk about family history, we really have to go beyond what people conventionally think of as a family history for breast cancer, where they typically think, you know, did that affect my mother or my sisters? It really, these genes can be passed through both the mother and the father's line. So you need to start thinking about paternal relatives as well. So, you know, what matters in aunts and what matters in cousins and grandparents, those are all really important for us to assess what the likelihood is that somebody has an inherited predisposition to developing breast cancer. There are also familial tendencies. So those are different things than, than a single gene where there's a mutation. That's something where we're talking about, you know, there's just, it runs in the family, but it has a lower absolute risk. But certainly for somebody who is diagnosed with breast cancer, um, we do think about genetic testing regardless of age um, in some women. So it depends on what subtype of breast cancer somebody has. It's going to depend on their family history. All of those things are going to go into the equation. And frankly, I will tell you that we might be moving to a place where we think about more universal genetic testing in all breast cancer patients. We're not quite there yet. We're at that phase for women, anyone with ovarian cancer, regardless of their age, we are recommending genetic testing to them uh, because we can find mutations in those women and, and that can have significant impact on their treatment as well as on other family members. Now, genetic testing itself um, is, is either just a simple blood test for the test or one can even do it from a saliva collection. Uh, what really has to go hand in hand with it is uh, what we think of as genetic counseling, or what we call genetic counseling, uh, where somebody really sits and meets ideally with a genetic counselor. Sometimes it's with their provider where they discuss, you know, the pros and cons 
of, of genetic testing, the implications if one tests positive. These are tests that affect not only oneself, but also one's family members. So if somebody tests positive, you know, we need to talk to them about how they share this information with family members, because it certainly has these ricochet or cascading effects to, to other family members. But the test itself is not an invasive test. It's just, you know, making sure that one understands what one is proceeding with, with genetic testing. So having a, a clear dialogue with a healthcare provider about it and thinking about the pluses and minuses, and then either just a simple blood test or a saliva collection. If a person, say, first had the discussion with their primary care provider, and the provider says, well, I'm not as up on genetic counseling as I should be. Is there some place that a person can look? I mean, could they come to the Lombardi Center, for instance? Or are there other ways that people, especially if there is some tendency of, of cancer in one's family, that they can find uh, genetic counseling? Absolutely. So, so we certainly have a very active uh, cancer genetic counseling program. So, so they could come to us. They could look on our website and and easily find it. Um, you know, we certainly, ideally, uh, we we at our institution uh, tend to perform all of our genetic testing with genetic counseling beforehand and genetic counseling session after to discuss the result once it becomes available. The result takes you know somewhere between. 10 days to three to four weeks to come back. Um, so we, we do that session where we go through things with people and explain to them the meaning and, and help them interpret it and see how they would apply it and, and share that information with family members as well. Um, so we could certainly do that. Uh, there are other sites across the city that, that do it. Certainly, if somebody has genetic testing done, let's say by their primary care provider, and they're found to have a mutation or a change, we strongly advise them to reach out then and seek genetic counseling with a genetic counselor to more fully explain that. And I, and I guess I want to say one more thing about genetic testing, just for clarity. Um, so, so the interpretation of a genetic test result, you know, can be complicated. So not every change that is seen actually has clinical importance to an individual. Um, so when we see a change that is called a pathogenic variant, for instance, that's the new wording that, that, that people are using, the labs are reporting, that has importance. But you can also have what are called variants of uncertain significance, where there is a, a change in the gene, but we're not sure whether that has any actual consequences to an individual. And the most, the majority of the time, those changes actually do not have consequences. But we've seen people referred for preventative surgery to us um, who have had one of these variants that don't have clinical significance. And one certainly wants to make sure one fully understands where one falls in that spectrum um, before embarking on something like preventative surgery. So it really is important to get a very good and thoughtful interpretation of the test result if it comes back as not totally normal, not totally, you know, there's nothing there, just to make sure that change is actually a significant one and one that has impact for that individual. And I'm also wondering if this goes on with the patient, the genetic testing, do you usually advise that the other family members uh, get tested as well? 
Absolutely. If somebody is found to have a, a genetic change, a mutation that is clinically significant, then it is key um, that other family members, that we disseminate this information to other family members so that they can get tested. Because we actually now have, for most of these genes, very clear data on what we can do to either prevent cancers from happening or to diagnose them at an earlier stage uh, when they would be more likely to be curable. So it is really an important part of the genetic counseling process is to make sure that if there is a change found that we, that we share this information for family members so that they can avail themselves of, of testing and they can choose to then undergo either more intensive screening or think about cancer prevention options. Okay. Well, and I, I really appreciate you emphasizing, Dr. Isaacs, about the fact that if someone has the breast cancer genes, that doesn't necessarily guarantee that they're going to get breast cancer. Absolutely. So there are two parts to that. Um, it is if somebody has a breast cancer gene, what we mean is that they have a mutation in a gene. We all have those genes, okay? It's just that there's a change or a mutation in it that then is the, the thing that increases somebody's risk for developing breast cancer, okay? But there can be different types of changes. So if you have a change in the gene, make sure that that change is one that is clinically important. So let's say somebody got genetic testing and there's something that came out, it's important that people really understand, is that change meaningful or not, okay? So that's number one. Okay, in terms of uh, does everyone get it? The other thing is even for people who have a meaningful change, the risk is not 100%. Okay, so when we quote the risks for people who inherit a mutation, for instance, in BRCA1, we say that their lifetime risk for breast cancer is about 55% to about 75 or 80%. So obviously that's, that's a huge risk. But not everyone who gets that, who has that gene, has that mutation, actually goes on to develop breast cancer. So it's important to realize that it's not everyone who has it, and then that there are different types of changes that can be seen. So make sure that you understand whether the change that is found, if there is one found, whether that one is one of the ones that is carries that increased risk for breast cancer. Okay, that's very helpful. I wanted to turn now to the common signs of breast cancer. What what should our listeners, our women listeners of all ages, what do they need to look for um, that would indicate that they may have breast cancer? What are the common signs? So one of the commonest signs is that somebody feels a lump in their breast or in their underarm area. Um, so those are things that people definitely need to bring to the attention of uh, their provider. Um, sometimes people feel, um, see some changes, some dimpling of the skin, like it's there's some unevenness there or the nipple is retracted. Those are also signs. Sometimes less commonly people can see some swelling and some redness and some warmth of their breast. And that too is, is a sign that there might be a breast cancer there. So all of those things would be the things that, that people would look for as a sign of breast cancer. And if they have any of these symptoms, is it appropriate to go to your primary care physician uh, first, just to verify that, um, in addition to what we've already talked about in terms of diagnostic 
procedures and uh, genetic testing, should they go to a primary care provider right away or OBGYN? What do you suggest uh, in terms of who to see first? Most women go to their primary care provider, be it their internist or their their gynecologist. Um, You know, if somebody feels a mass or notices some other abnormality in their breast that we've just described, then yes, getting in and getting seen promptly. And, and, you know, one of the things that we really saw during COVID is that that people were obviously trying to stay away um, and there were some delays in diagnosis as a result. So if somebody notices something, they should go to their primary care provider get themselves examined by them. And then typically the primary care provider would be the one who would then order uh, the imaging. And often the imaging that is done if somebody is feeling something and there's a sign is is both a mammogram, but also an ultrasound is done as a diagnostic procedure to look at that area and sort out what's going on. And as a physician, I often wonder whether you wish that maybe as patients come to see you, I know you're not a primary care physician, but as a woman, if she has, again, some of these symptoms and decides to go to get that checked out, is there any other preparation that patients could do when they go to their primary care uh, physician that could help make a better, more accurate diagnosis I'm just wondering whether sometimes people don't properly prepare for an appointment when they do go to see their physician, maybe about medications or lifestyle or whatever. What do listeners need to know? I think the main thing, if somebody is actually feeling a breast mass or notices an abnormality, make sure to tell your your, your provider. Okay, make sure to tell your doctor or your nurse practitioner, whoever it is that you're seeing, and show them where you're feeling it, okay? So I guess the thing that I would say is, you know, sometimes it's hard to feel breast masses, and sometimes the person feels it better than the clinician does. Um, and so tell them in what position you feel it better and make sure that they feel the area that you are concerned about. The other thing, it, you know, in postmenopausal women, there aren't the normal changes that we see with with menstruation where there can be changes in in the breast uh consistency and you can have you know benign cysts and various things that happen so you know if there is a breast lump or you're noticing some thickening or something that just doesn't feel right make sure to advocate for yourself it doesn't mean that it's cancer but it means that it should be evaluated and we should make sure it isn't cancer i also wanted to get your feedback. Sometimes, especially if a mammogram is done and the woman is advised to come back because they see something that's suspicious, shall we say, is that a a cause for, could it be a cause for worry? Or sometimes is it just that there is a denser mass or, or something else on the breast? Because I think you know, this is such a serious illness for a condition for women that I think, and this has actually occurred in, in my life, that I had to go back and, and get rechecked and it, everything turned out okay. But can there be certain other things that you see on the mammogram that don't need to be uh, of concern? Uh, absolutely. Um, so, you know, this is a Mammogram is a screening test, and so the point of it is to try not to miss things. So it means that it means that the breast imager needs to be cautious, right? We don't want to say there, there, it's nothing, and send somebody off for a year and have it be something. So there are a lot more what we call callbacks. You know, you need to come back for additional imaging, 
or the breast imager says, I want to follow this again and repeat it in three months or six months. It's just to be cautious. You know, as, as doctors, it's our job to be cautious. Um, and so there are a lot of callbacks that are nothing, and that's terrific, okay? We want to minimize that because obviously it's it's scary, um, understandably anxiety-provoking to have to come back and is it something? Um, so there is a relatively low threshold to make sure that we're not missing something. So callbacks are because either there were overlapping shadows or that there was a mass that was not clearly defined. Sometimes we can see calcifications. And so it's to better characterize those as well. Sometimes they do indeed represent a, a newly diagnosed cancer, but sometimes it's something benign, but one just needed to be sure about that. And we always hope that's the case. So Absolutely, of course. And so at this point, we're going to take a short break. Uh, if you tuned in late, we are talking with Dr. Claudine Isaacs, who is the Professor of Medicine and Oncology with the Lombardi Comprehensive Cancer Center at Georgetown University. And she's also a practicing clinical oncologist at MedStar Georgetown University Hospital. And you are listening to WERA Arlington 96.7 FM. We'll be right back. Aging Matters on WERA is brought to you in part by Synergy Home Care. Synergy Home Care provides premier in-home care for you or your loved one throughout Northern Virginia, including personal care, homemaker services, companion and memory care, and transportation. Call 703-558-3435 or visit SynergyHomeCare.com for more information. Synergy Home Care will find a care solution to meet your needs. Welcome back. We are talking with Dr. Claudine Isaacs, and we explained already who she is, but just to refresh your memory, she is a clinical oncologist at MedStar Georgetown University Hospital. And so, Dr. Isaacs, we've talked a lot about risk factors and diagnosis and testing and symptoms. So, Let's spend the rest of the interview talking about once a breast cancer diagnosis is made. First of all, who are the healthcare team members that are involved with the patient's care? So there, there is a big team uh, that, that surrounds women who have a new breast cancer diagnosis. Um, in terms of the types of the people that, you know, people typically really meet with and think of as part of their team. There's there's typically a surgeon. Uh, often they have a focus on breast cancer. Um, there is a medical oncologist, somebody like me, who thinks about the systemic or whole body treatment. And sometimes there's also uh, radiation oncology that, that comes into that. Um, but there are also lots of other people who are part of this. So uh, the breast imager is an integral member of the team who's helping to make the diagnosis. In the background, there are people like the pathologist who, who most patients don't meet, who are helping us, who are interpreting what the biopsy shows. And then there are lots of other groups of people. As we mentioned earlier, you know, we frequently refer people for genetic counseling. So we have cancer genetic counselors who are involved. We have social workers. We have fantastic oncology nurses. Many of us are 
are very lucky to work with advanced practice nurses. So nurse practitioners who are part of the team, we have nutritionists, we have social workers, you know, there are a lot of people who are part of the team um, that surrounds somebody with a new breast cancer diagnosis. And do these team members all meet together with the patient and her family? Or how does that work? So sometimes they meet all together. It depends often because there's so many different things. It would be an incredibly long meeting. Often people meet people in sequence. And and we often have, we also have nurse navigators who are at the entry point who help patients make sure that they're getting to the right places. So for instance, at Lombardi, we have a breast medical oncology nurse navigator for new patients. And we have a surgical nurse navigator who works with, with our nurse navigators. So we really help the patient sort of go through the different steps. For the majority of women, the surgeon is the first point of contact. Um, And then that's when after that, the medical oncologist and the radiation oncologist come in. But for certain subtypes of breast cancer, the breast medical oncologist is really the first part of treatment and then people go to surgery. So it really depends on the subtype of breast cancer and what's going on for that individual woman. And to that point, Dr. Isaacs, is that what's meant by staging breast cancer? What, what does that mean? Staging breast cancer refers to a couple of things. Um, staging refers to the staging in terms of, you know, how big is the tumor? Are there any lymph nodes involved? Typically, lymph nodes, if they're involved, what we're talking about are lymph nodes in the underarm area on the same side as the breast cancer has been diagnosed. Um, And then we also have to make sure there's no evidence that the breast cancer has spread anywhere else. For most women, we don't actually do scans for that. We just look at routine blood tests. We take a history and physical exam, and we make sure there's no signs of it. The majority of women, I want to just stress this, who are diagnosed with breast cancer in this country are diagnosed with what, what we think of as localized disease, disease that is has not spread beyond the breast and lymph node area, and disease where our treatments are really geared to increasing the chance of cure. And most women are, in fact, cured of breast cancer. Most women diagnosed in this country have curable disease. And we're going to be talking about the various treatment options, but is there a methodology that is used to determine the the best treatment for the the breast cancer? I'm imagining with all of these individuals who are uh, these healthcare providers who are involved, but what is that process? So so the process for determining the type of treatment is really based on the subtype of breast cancer, uh, where it is, you know, how big is it, what's going on with the underarm area, are there any lymph nodes involved or not, and is there any evidence that has spread anywhere else? And those are really the things that 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 really set us in motion in terms of figuring out the best options. And then in terms of other things, uh, obviously, it's, you know, what are a woman's other health conditions? Um, What are the side effects of the treatment for her? And how do we adapt that and individualize our treatment based on a woman's preference and other issues, other health issues or other medications and the other things that would come into play? And I'm wondering if sometimes, given the fact that we're talking about these are older women, might that have a, a bearing um, as opposed to a younger? I'm, I'm trying to think about in terms of age, if that is ever a factor. Age is certainly a factor in some of our uh, treatment decision making. Um, so let me just step back a little bit and just 
particularly if anyone has had a breast cancer diagnosis or knows of somebody who has, you know, we divide breast cancer into different types. So it's not breast cancer is not one thing. So we look to see whether the tumor is what we call a hormone receptor positive or HER2 positive or triple negative or the big subtypes of, of breast cancer that we can see. And we have therapies that target um, different subtypes. So we use different types of treatments for different, the different types of breast cancer. In older women, uh, we also have some evidence that there are some treatments that aren't needed sometimes and that can be omitted and safely omitted. Um, so what we're increasingly trying to do in oncology and in breast cancer is really to individualize our therapy. So, so what does that mean? That means that we treat the person with what she needs for her cancer type, but we don't treat her with the stuff that she doesn't need. And, and we're certainly not perfect yet. We're not yet at the point where we can look at an individual and say, you specifically need this or you specifically need that. But certainly based on the breast cancer subtype, there are things that we know we should give or should not give are unnecessary. We don't need to expose women to, to those unnecessary side effects. And then we also have some good data, specifically in older women, that there are instances where if somebody has, in terms of their surgical treatment, they have what's called a lumpectomy, where they just have the tumor taken out, depending on the characteristics of that tumor, whereas in a younger woman, we'd always say you need radiation. In older women, we have good data that for some of those women, they can omit and safely omit the need for radiation. So there are things that are specific by age. And you just mentioned about the surgical options and the lumpectomy. So that's one surgical option. Might there be others as well then? And again, what would determine which one would be selected? Absolutely. So that's that's an excellent question. Our, our, so when we think about surgery for breast cancer, there, there are two parts of that. There's, there's surgery for the tumor itself in the breast, and then there's surgery in the underarm area to look at those lymph nodes and to see whether they're involved or not. So in terms of surgery for the breast itself, the options are what's called a lumpectomy, where basically the surgeon takes out the lump, okay? And they take out a rim of normal tissue so that they make sure that the, that the cancer isn't right at the edge, okay, of the specimen. Or there is mastectomy where the whole breast gets removed. So in terms of the uh, mastectomy, the entire breast is removed. And some women choose as a prevention to have the other breast removed. But that's, that's really a very personal choice. And if there's nothing going on in that other breast, medically, um, there, is, there are certain uncommon instances, like people who have a hereditary predisposition, where we think about that being medically indicated. But in most instances, that's a personal choice that would be driving um, that uh, decision. So the surgical options are lumpectomy. And in younger women, it always is accompanied by radiation. Okay. In older women, we have really good data that in some women, we can safely omit the radiation and spare that woman that treatment. And then with mastectomy, sometimes there is a need for radiation as well. So sometimes you're doing mastectomy with radiation. The underarm area, increasingly what's happening is that the surgeon is looking for 
what we think of what we call the sentinel node. So that's the scout. That's the first node that's likely to be involved. So sometimes they're just doing a procedure where they're identifying that sentinel node and taking it out. Um, there's also growing data in particularly in older women that there might be times when one could safely omit that procedure. So minimize the surgical intervention as well. But again, this is very individualized. So, you know, this is something that is a discussion with the patient and her surgeon and her team to try and figure out what makes most sense for her based on her tumor characteristics. And to the point about radiation therapy, I was also wondering when is chemotherapy recommended as opposed to radiation therapy? Because often, of course, you hear about side effects of, of each of these types of therapy. So help us understand a little bit more about the difference and the, the choice of radiation versus chemotherapy. So I think a really important thing to get across is that these are, it's not a choice of radiation versus chemotherapy. Okay. Okay. The choice of radiation really goes more hand in hand with the choice of surgical decision-making. Okay. But it's not, and people often think that, that they could sort of barter off, I'll do radiation instead of chemo. Um, unfortunately, you know, we think of, or what we think of is we think of local regional therapy as one decision, and then the systemic or whole body decision as a separate decision. So women who have lumpectomy, are the ones where radiation needs to be considered. As I mentioned, in, in older women, that can be omitted safely in a subset of them. Um, with mastectomy, sometimes there still is a need for radiation, okay? The chemotherapy decision is really one that's, that's done with the medical oncologist and is based on the tumor characteristics are really the things that would drive us to make recommendations for or against chemotherapy. Um, in certain subsets of breast cancer, for instance, in triple negative breast cancer, we often, that that is really the backbone of what we can do to reduce risk, but we need to take into account uh, what somebody's other health status is. But, you know, if they're otherwise healthy and they have a triple negative breast cancer, then typically we would be thinking about chemotherapy unless this is really teeny tiny or something. Um, and then there is also other therapies. So there's what we call hormone blocking treatment or endocrine therapy, which are typically pills that are taken for tumors that are hormone receptor positive to decrease the risk of recurrence. And then for tumors that are HER2 positive in terms of whole body or systemic treatment, we think about giving uh, antibody directed therapy. So drugs like that people have heard about, uh, they often hear about a drug called Herceptin or Pergetta. Those are drugs that are typically given with chemotherapy as well, and they're given to reduce the risk of the breast cancer spreading to some other part of the body. And so what you just said, so is that the same thing then as targeted therapy drugs? Yes. Yeah, so, so the endocrine therapy is targeted. It's targeted towards tumors that are hormone receptor positive. Um, HER2-directed therapy is targeted treatment. It's targeted towards tumors that are HER2 positive. There are other targeted treatments that we have as well, but these are really the targeted treatments that we are using in early stage breast cancer. Okay. And I also, as I was preparing questions, found something called immunotherapy. Did you explain that already, or is that also yet another type of, of treatment? It is yet another type of treatment. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so that is one in early stage breast cancer, that the place that we currently are using it, and this is really new, this is only in the past year that we have evidence for this, 
is for women who have triple negative breast cancer that is either a larger tumor or if somebody has no positive disease, then we use immunotherapy in addition to chemotherapy because trials have shown that that reduces the risk of the breast cancer spreading elsewhere in the body and it improves survival for women if we do that. Now, the, the, the I guess one, one other thing that I wanted to just mention, and I think I, I alluded to beforehand, is the order of treatment. And, and in 2022 and in the past, you know, five years or so, we've started to shift the order of what we do for some women so some women, particularly we're really thinking about women who have triple negative disease or who have HER2 positive breast cancer, we're often giving the, the chemotherapy or the chemotherapy plus HER2 targeted therapy or plus immunotherapy before the surgery. And that's really important because it allows us to assess how the tumor responds to that treatment in that person and allows us to guide subsequent treatments based on the response. So if we took somebody to surgery first, we'd have no idea how our treatment, our systemic or whole body treatment, how effective it was for that particular person. Do you find, Dr. Isaacs, uh, these are all, as you've explained and prefaced your remarks by saying, these are very effective treatments is there ever a point where supportive palliative care is the treatment of choice uh, for a woman with breast cancer, or is the goal always to find a treatment uh, that will be effective in treating the breast cancer? So absolutely. What we've been focusing on right now is is disease, localized disease, what we call early stage breast cancer. So, so breast cancer that is confined to the breast and, and potentially also the lymph nodes in that in the same sided underarm. Um, so that is treatment where we're really focused. The goal of our therapy is to increase the chance for cure. It's not perfect. So none of our therapies take the risk of recurrence to zero. So sometimes women who are diagnosed with localized disease will go on to develop disease that spreads to other parts of the body. Um, and that's called metastatic disease. And sometimes women present with metastatic disease. And, and in that setting, we, we do have a very different approach. And in 2022, we don't have evidence that yet that we can cure metastatic breast cancer, although that we have a few patients, all of us have some patients where we think they might be cured. And there are new drugs coming down the line all the time. But the treatment in metastatic setting is very different than what we've described so far. We've really been focused on risk factors for developing breast cancer, and then the approach to the treatment of early stage or localized disease. So everything that we've talked about until now has focused on that. In metastatic disease, given that we can't cure it, we have lots of effective treatments. We have lots of other targeted treatments on top of the ones that we talked about for early stage disease. So we have other targeted treatments as well that we give with our some of our standard treatments. But certainly palliative care is very appropriate for, for women at some point along their journey with metastatic disease. Although I do want to stress that there are many women who are out there living and living very, very well with metastatic disease and doing well for years and years. So it's not something that I would typically bring in early on. But at some point uh, along the course, uh, many women do want to focus on palliative care and is absolutely appropriate. It is also absolutely correct 
to always be thinking about symptom management along the time, along somebody's time course with metastatic disease or, or early stage disease. So we focus, we've talked about it, we've talked about the drugs that we use to treat, but we also have drugs that we have to mitigate the side effects from our treatments, as well as to manage any side effects for somebody who has metastatic disease. If they're having symptoms from their cancer, we're also very focused on treating those symptoms in addition to getting at treating the cancer itself. And do you have any thoughts about complementary or alternative medicine therapies that can be used to, say, treat the side effects of breast cancer treatments? Um, so again, that, that's a really good question. We, we certainly have evidence that for symptom control in a lot of settings, acupuncture can be highly effective. Um, in terms of taking supplements, you know, we, we have some that have been proven, but most, most information on supplements as treatment or to manage side effects are, are not very clear. And there have been a number of studies done where they haven't necessarily panned out. So I always urge people to share with their healthcare provider if they are taking supplementary or complementary um, medications or vitamins or herbs. Um, the issue with those is that, you know, they're not innocuous. They, they are chemicals as well. And so they could interact with the standard treatments, they, which could potentially both decrease the effectiveness of the standard anti-cancer treatment or could increase the risk of side effects. So all of those things um, are things that somebody needs to consider. So it's really critically important um, that, um, that women share with their providers if they are taking any other uh, sorts of medications or any other sorts of supplements. You've been talking a lot about the treatment uh, of breast cancer. I which of course is the physiological aspects and the uh, the physical aspects. Tell us more about what you see and what you recommend in terms of the support from family members and care partners uh, for women who have been diagnosed with breast cancer. This is it can be devastating. And how do you interact with your patients and and especially with their families and care partners as they have to deal with this condition? Absolutely. So as, as you can tell, there's a lot to think about, a lot to talk about when somebody's diagnosed with breast cancer yep. and a lot the, the course of her treatment. And you know what you raised is another key thing that we always address. And and you know we we do talk to women and their care providers uh, about um, you know availing themselves of supportive services we direct them towards that we help them with that we we have services ourselves as well um, so it is it is of importance and that's of key importance not as you mentioned not only for the patient obviously but also for the care providers um, for that particular patient. So it is something to be attuned to. There are a lot of there are a lot of services um, out there. Certainly, most groups like ours, you know, have social workers and clinical psychologists that we work with, and various other uh, individuals that we work with. We have rehab medicine that is really fantastic that can help with side effects. Um, there are support groups, and then there are wonderful, you know, institutions across across the city. So Hope Connections is is one of those great groups that that provides uh, free services to to cancer uh, patients, and and so there are a lot of things out there, and it's a very very important part of all of this. Um, so yes, we've been talking about drugs and treatments and all that, but but it's very important to to think of to think of the person and to think about 
family members and how it's impacting them. Cause, cause we all recognize, as I say, nobody ever wants to meet me. I, I hope, you know, socially they don't mind, but professionally, nobody wants to meet somebody like me. And we know that, and we're there to really help people uh, through this, this journey and this process. Well, that's so important. And, and as I said, when the diagnosis is made, it not only affects the, the patient, but the family as well. I wanted to ask one other question about participation in clinical trials. You mentioned earlier in the interview that while there's lots of treatments and uh, the approaches are improving, yet there's not a cure. And perhaps some in some cases, a woman might be uh, interested in participating in clinical trials, but often it's kind of an area that's not very well known. What, what would you tell someone or our listeners in general what they should know about participating in clinical trials as they relate to breast cancer? Well, clinical trials have gotten us to where we are today, which is you know a much, much, much improved outlook for, for patients with a breast cancer diagnosis. I, I want to make one point clear before I delve into the clinical trials. You know, what I think... What I, what I said and what I want to make sure is clear for the viewers is, or the, the audience is that for women with metastatic disease, for the majority of them, we, we don't have evidence that we can cure them today, but I am hopeful that through clinical trials, there will be things that we discover and things that we'll be able to do that if it doesn't result in cure, it results in this being a really very long-term chronic condition that can be held at bay, okay? For most women with early stage disease, though, we can cure them, okay? And what we're trying to do with clinical trials in that area is increase the chance for cure by looking at new treatments, potentially. Also, what we are increasingly trying to do is figure out how we can safely dial back. We don't want to be throwing the kitchen sink at everyone, right? We want to figure out how to individualize treatment. So, you know, we have a trial and we have a number of trials that are trying to look at that. How do we actually, you know, offer women the most appropriate treatment for the cancer that they were diagnosed with? And, and we're not there yet, but we are increasingly getting there. You are you heard about the targeted therapies that we're using in breast cancer in early stage disease in our in our earlier conversations, um, and clinical trials are really what will get us there. So I would urge people to to realize that you know clinical trials come in in different types. Um, it's important. I would always ask my healthcare provider: Is there a clinical trial that I could participate in? You can choose to participate or not participate. Um, but there may be something that's offered within that clinical trial that one could not get as standard of care, which you know may be a very promising new avenue of treatment. So um, those are the possibilities. Many people say, you know, I want my children to have something better tomorrow. So by me participating in a clinical trial today, we'll be doing something better tomorrow. So that could be part of the motivation as well. And clinical trials are not always drugs or interventions. There are other things. So we have clinical trials that are looking at better modes of supportive care. Um, there are all sorts of things that one can do, but, but clinical trials are really what allow us to be doing something better today than when we were doing yesterday, giving our patients a better outcome and better outcome means, you know, greater likelihood of, of, of beating this. Um, and also, you know, maybe avoiding drugs that one doesn't need and avoiding the side effects of, of those things. Um, and so I would really urge people to just keep an open mind about clinical trials. Um, you know, and the other thing about a clinical trials, if, 
if you start on it and and you don't like it, you're you have and you are the main driver. You're the one who says, I don't want to do this anymore. And and we would stop. Um, or if we think that something is coming around, there are lots of guardrails around clinical trials. So if something has changed and this trial doesn't sound like the right option anymore because some breaking news came out yesterday, then we address it and we, and we stop it. So it's it's our job to stay on top of it with you. And are there certain resources then, Dr. Isaacs, where people can learn more about clinical trials, certainly a place where you know it's very reliable as opposed to one that you probably don't want to get involved anything that a person should know you know there are there there's clinicaltrials.gov is a is a big repository for clinical trials it's not necessarily the easiest place to navigate but you can look for trials in your area you can look for it based on the stage or the subtype of cancer that one has so it is a, a good initial tool um, what I would suggest and what people often do is, you know, depending on where they're at and what's going on, um, they might want to have a referral to an academic uh, place that has a lot of clinical trials like our institution or other institutions across the country to see whether there are any trials that are options for them. I'll tell you, you know, we have trials right now that are trying to figure out, We, as I mentioned, you know, in women over the age of 70 who have small hormone receptor positive breast cancers, we have good evidence for a clinical trial that was done 15, 20 years ago that we can safely omit radiation. So we have trials now that are trying to figure out, is there a broader group where we could do that? Um, and so there are big national trials that we have open at our institution, um, and I'm sure they're open at other places in the area as well that are trying to address that question, trying to figure out how we can safely dial down on some of those things. And then there are trials that are trying to, you know, adjust the types of therapies that we're doing in early stage disease. And in the metastatic setting, there are so many exciting new drugs that are being developed, so many new targeted therapies. And those are only offered within the setting of clinical trials right now. There are new ones that we have available based on yesterday's trials. Um, but, you know, at a certain point, people might want to see along their metastatic journey whether they are eligible for some of these new trials. All right. Good advice in terms of clinical trials. So final question. You've mentioned some resources already. Any other best resources that you would recommend to our listeners to learn more about breast cancer? So, you you know, the resources I would think of, I would think about the American Cancer Society. I would think about Komen Foundation. They have really good general resources on cancer. Um, Most big academic centers also have websites that have general information about it. So we have and others have those sites available. But I would really avail myself of those sites. I would look at reputable, um, you know, well, um, well, gone through sites where, where you can really feel like what you're getting is, is reputable and clear information because there's a lot out there that can be really confusing and very misleading. And did you want to say anything about the Lombardi Comprehensive Cancer Center? Sure. So, so certainly at, uh, at Lombardi, we have uh, information about breast cancer and breast cancer treatment. We have information about our clinical trials and we have clinical trials uh, that run the gamut for women with all stages of breast cancer, as well as women who are at increased risk for breast cancer. Um, And we have a multidisciplinary team of of specialists who are there to help guide people through their breast cancer journey to make sure that one is getting um, state-of-the-art care and access to what we think of as tomorrow's treatments today. All right. Well, I want to thank Dr. Claudine Isaacs, 
the Professor of Medicine and Oncology with the Georgetown University Lombardi Comprehensive Cancer Center for joining me today. If you want to learn more about Aging Matters, of course, you can visit our website, which is agingmattersonline.com. And of course, at that site, you can access all of our Aging Matters radio and TV show content. And of course, also the Aging Matters podcasts, which are broadcast on Apple and Spotify. Aging Matters is produced in association with Ink Mouth Media, and that website is inkmouthmedia.com. For more information, be sure and check that out. So thank you for listening to Aging Matters today. And remember, age is just a number, not a label. I'll be back again with you next week. Mm -hmm.